What if we could displace global plastics and our reliance on fossil fuels? Plastics, they're actually less than a century old. We really first started commercializing plastics back in the 1940s. And so for us, we see a couple of challenges with conventional plastics. One is the reliance on fossil fuels, which is inherently extractive. We have to negatively impact the planet in order to extract these materials and then put them into really non-durable goods, which is not a great application for these finite resources. The other aspect is because of the scale, it really had to be centralized, which means that we end up having to transport these materials over vast distances in order to take advantage of them. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. And great ideas can come from anywhere. The people at Gray have a long history of finding and creating famously effective ideas. And so with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creators, artists, founders, and leaders from different industries about how they came up with their best ideas. And that's Gray Matter. On this episode of Gray Matter, we'll dig deep to find out how one big idea can change the products we use every day and help the planet at the same time. Hi, I'm Jason Connor, Global Chief Client Officer at Gray. This week, we're discussing the idea behind the mycelium materials company, Ecovative. Gray Associate Creative Director Iman Omar chatted with Ecovative's co-founder and Chief Commercialization Officer, Gavin McIntyre, about how a classroom project led him on his journey into entrepreneurship and how he combined what he learned from both his mother, a biologist, and his father, a physicist, to bring his idea to life. Gavin started Ecovative in college with his business partner, Eben Baer, who serves as co-founder and CEO of Ecovative. Together with their team, they tackle the burden set on the planet caused by plastics. Founded in 2007 and based in Green Island, New York, Ecovative houses a number of brands that cover a wide range of products, including My Forest Foods, a meat substitute, Forager Hides, a leather alternative, Forager Foams, a fully compostable foam, and Mushroom Packaging, a plastic-free solution to boxing products. In 2014, the material was used in a brick form in a 40-foot tower on view in New York through MoMA. And in February 2020, furniture giant IKEA committed to using Ecovative technology in their packaging. Gavin and Ecovative are focused on addressing real-world problems through their technology, and their ideas could have a huge impact on the world. This is Gavin McIntyre. Big what if that we were looking at was what if we could decentralize manufacturing? So what if we could bring local farms to grow materials rather than requiring all of these high embodied energy processes and inherently environmentally negative impacts uh, by delivering high quality, high performing materials that can allow us to maintain our quality of life while reducing our reliance on fossil fuels? How long have you been interested in this? Can you tell me about how a background in mechanical engineering led to this? Yeah, certainly. So myself and Ecovative's other co-founder, Eben Bayer, started the company while we were studying at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is an engineering university located in upstate New York. As a mechanical engineer and product designer by training, we were in an independent design studio that focused on solving some of the world's most pressing problems. And this course was led by a professor by the name of Bert Swerzy, who was a serial entrepreneur, and he principally focused on not doing nonsense. So he focused us on not designing the next widget 
or an iPhone, but rather finding some uh, real world problem that could be addressed with a technological solution. So in that classroom, the problem that we identified was the ubiquity of plastics and principally single-use plastics. For those of us who can think back to 2006, 2007, this was before the dawn of hydrofracking. So energy prices were really high. And one of the attributes of fossil fuels that isn't widely recognized is that about 10% of all fossil fuels actually go into the production of materials like plastics. And so plastic prices were also increasing. And then, of course, the end of their useful life cycle, plastics are really just a detriment to the planet. They accumulate, and now we've become to really recognize the implications that these materials have on our ecology and then us as a global population. And so for us, what Evan and I were focusing on was how do we find a solution that is already well-rooted within nature? And for that, we look to mushrooms. And you might ask yourself, well, why mushrooms? Well, mushrooms in nature are the recycling system. So mushrooms are very adept to taking leaf litter and coarse woody debris and transforming those materials into the mushrooms you may find on the forest floor or growing out of the side of a tree. Well, our aha moment was taking a look at fungal biology, mushroom biology, and identifying, well, there's this really rapidly growing component of mushrooms it's known as mycelium which is in essence the root structure of mushrooms, the vast network of mushroom tissue you don't see because it's actually underneath the forest floor or inside of the tree, and employing that as a natural adhesive or glue to grow rather than manufacture in a conventional sense, the next generation of materials. And so within the classroom, we were armed with a small budget where we could buy mushroom cultures off the internet from conventional uh, mushroom growers. And we started to grow our own materials, basically in our dorm rooms, underneath our beds and in our closets to really demonstrate that we could create a material that had properties very similar to conventional plastic foams was the focus at the time. And that initial inspiration within the classroom is what led us to bootstrap the company, at least to the initial phase of manufacturing, where today we grow alternatives for conventional plastics that are used in packaging, as well as in apparel entirely grown from uh, mushroom roots or mycelium. It's amazing. Are all mushrooms created equal when it comes to mycelium? That's a very good question, Iman. So at Ecovative, we have a vast library of different types of fungal species, uh, over 300 individuals that we have a very lucky team at a, in our organization that can go out to the woods and actually harvest mushrooms and then interrogate their different material properties. And to answer your question directly, not all mushroom species behave the same. And so we select an individual mushroom variety depending on the material properties we're looking for. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So one of our product lines is actually in food. So we grow an alternative to conventional pork bacon that's grown from gourmet oyster mushroom mycelium. Oyster mushrooms you may be familiar with, you can go to the grocery store and then find them pretty commonly throughout North America. In that instance, we were looking for having a great flavor and texture that's very similar to meat. And these particular mushroom species provided that particular attribute. And that's why we adapted that to our vertical farming system. Now, when we look at material science, we're no longer solving for something like taste and texture, we're really solving for mechanical performance. How well does it protect your product in transit? So once you buy something on uh, a web platform and it gets delivered to your home, how do you ensure that it gets there safely? 
So in that instance, we were focused on finding a mycelium strain that's very tough and tenacious, something that grows very readily. And of course, at the end of its useful life cycle can rapidly decompose basically anywhere in the world. So it doesn't have a burden to the planet. So we intentionally select the mushroom species that we use based on the product applications. And so we have different individuals for different product categories, be it apparel, protective packaging, or food. We have so many different things that you're making. And generally when, you know, you're breaking ground on something new, you might focus on like one part of the problem, but it seems that you have a at least three pronged approach to it, which is, you know, reducing plastics, helping to provide food and also showing people that different kinds of products don't need to be made out of plastics or harmful materials like apparel. What made you choose to look at all of those things as opposed to focusing in on um, one product line? As a technology company, focus is always very challenging. And when we first got started back in 2006, we were actually focused on the building construction market. The largest application for plastic foams in the world is in building insulation. But as you might imagine, when you're starting to pitch a building insulation that's made out of mushrooms, you get a lot of very interesting looks, right? Yeah. And so from there, we said, OK, well, how could we address some of the concerns there are about this new material before it's out there in the world while taking advantage of one of its key performance attributes, which is its ability to biodegrade? And that's what allowed us to pivot and focus on protective packaging, which is a product we first introduced in 2009. Now we have over 10 commercial producers on three continents growing mushroom packaging as a product. It was only once that product line became mature, then we started to expand out and say, okay, one of the core attributes of mycelium is that it provides unique structure. And what other industries require structural materials? And that's what led us to leather-like textiles and elastomeric foams used in apparel. Of course, texture and food is actually a structural question. So how do we create delicious and nutritious food that provide the same texture that you would find from an animal product, but with a far smaller environmental impact as it relates to consumption of water, land use, and energy? And so that's what allowed us to focus to get a product into the market initially and then expand our breath over time as we identify new applications for mycelium that can solve some of the world's most pressing problems. So in essence, by trying to show as many different applications and uses for it is how you get people behind this. Because if it's just like one single production line, it's not going to show people the breadth of what can be done. And you kind of need to show somebody what you can do in order for them to buy off on it, and then you have to make something else. And so it made sense to go through all these. Once we were able to stabilize production, that's when we started to expand the breadth of what we uh, were developing and then bringing to market. One of the solutions that we had for addressing the wide number of applications that you find for plastic foams was to create, in essence, a do-it-yourself kit. So a grow-it-yourself kit. One of the interesting things with plastics is it's really challenging to produce plastics in your garage. You need twin screw extruders, lots of energy, and lots of space. When it comes to growing mycelium, this is something that we've handedly demystified so that it can be used in everywhere from kindergarten classrooms to uh, small businesses. And that has allowed us to encourage others to explore other markets that we might not directly serve, but we can provide them with the raw materials to do so. And so some examples of that include everything from surfboard cores to decorative items. 
different acoustic tiles that might be good for a home office as an example, or interesting light fixtures. And then we even have a business partner based in the Netherlands that grows compostable coffins. Wow. So coffins today are typically filled with lots of toxic substances, uh, which are not positive for the planet. And they're using our same base material that we use for packaging to grow coffins for end of life. Wow. You know, it, it is very interesting. I am a pretty smart girl, but it is only recently that I found out plastic is not recyclable. Somewhere in the 80s or the 90s, they put that little thing on things and you're like, oh, everything is recyclable. You know, I look at sustainable clothing like that's what I, you know, that's that's what I try to do. And it might be a different niche for everybody and how they try to save the planet. And I know that we everybody always talks about plastics, but it almost seems like it goes over our heads. Right. We're still like this is a bottle. It's just a water bottle. Is there any sort of scenario or metaphor you make to people about the problem? How would you explain like the kind of existential crisis and environmental crisis of plastics to people? Yeah. So when I think of plastics, I really like to think about first, where do they come from? Mm. So I do believe that people understand that petroleum is something that is sourced from the planet. And generally speaking, most recognize that this is a finite resource that is becoming increasingly more challenging to source. We're going to more and more exotic locations in order to get fossil fuels that we use to heat our homes and to power our vehicles. But these fossil fuel resources are also what spur plastics today. Really, plastics were created as a way to valorize byproducts of the fossil fuel industry. So before plastics, this was in essence a waste stream of the petroleum that was used to uh, fuel our vehicles. The other thing to consider about plastics is typically when we talk about landfills or recycling, once it goes in the bin, it's out of sight, out of mind. And it's really challenging to visualize what that means here in the United States, because we do silo these materials off into different locations. And I'd say the most uh, impactful visualization of plastics first came in the 2015-2016 period, where we first saw the uh, dawn of microplastics and the realization that these materials do degrade into smaller pieces in our environment, then make their way into our food system. And there are lots of compelling images that demonstrate that. And then similarly, we tend to deal with this problem by sending it to different countries uh, will be burdened for a particular price point. So we end up changing the localization of these materials and putting them out of sight and therefore out of mind, which is truly, uh, I think, one of the larger challenges of the plastics problem. Now, we've talked about a lot of um, in-depth stuff, and I want to talk about something fun. On your website, and I don't think it's real, right? But I needed to ask this. It shows like a shoe being grown. That's not how it works, right? That's just a cool visual. You can't just grow a sneaker like you would use a 3D printer, or can you? It depends on the product that we're producing. When it comes to footwear and leather-like textiles, We do not grow a shoe to near net shape. The way that our process works is if you were to come into one of our facilities is we have a series of vertical farms. So you could think of them almost like very large refrigerators that have these giant shelves. Mm -hmm. And each one of these shelves is conditioned with a unique environment. So you could think about growing plants as an example. They need a certain uh, type of temperature, certain type of relative humidity and light. 
mushrooms are similar, but they have different environmental requirements. So different temperatures, different humidities, and they don't require light to grow, which is one of the really interesting components. In that instance, we grow large sheets of material. So those tend to be about five and a half feet by over 30 feet in total length. So and if you were to equate that to leather, that would be each one of those shelves, about four cow hides. Those are the equivalent of four cows. So every other week we grow, uh, in essence, about 50 cows worth of material in one of our farm rooms. As an example, those materials go to a tannery. So today we work with one of the best in class uh, tanneries from a sustainability perspective, uh, Echo Leather, which is based in the Netherlands. They take our materials, they dye and finish it, and then they can transform it into a shoe or other types of garments. When it comes to products like protective packaging, those we actually grow to near net and final shape. So over the course of four days, those materials grow to the geometry in which we want the, them to have in the end. And at the end of the growth point, we harvest them in their final shape. So we don't have to put any additional labor or process steps into creating that product. And it moves fast. Yeah. So for our uh, applications within leather-like materials, those materials grow over the course of nine days. Our protective packaging products grow in just four days. That's one of the benefits of filamentous fungi is that they lend themselves quite nicely to industrial technology. One of the closest relatives to filamentous fungi like mushrooms is actually yeast, which is used in brewing everything from beer to pharmaceuticals and lots of other things. And so these are industrially scaled processes that all occur within a very short period of time. Fungi are good at doing this because they grow exponentially. So one cell becomes two cells, become four cells, becomes eight, so on and so forth. And that doubling effect happens very quickly as long as there's enough nutrition. And so part of our job is identifying the best nutrition for the mycelium strain that we're trying to grow. And so we actively work with farmers to identify different byproducts of the agriculture or forestry industry, and then design the mixture of those materials for the mushroom species that we're trying to grow focusing on growth rate and, of course, product quality. Just research into mushrooms, medicinally, what you're doing, all of this makes me feel that maybe mushrooms are smarter than we are. Maybe mushrooms can save us. My sister drinks like mushroom tea every day. Are mushrooms smarter than our bodies? Scientific term for the study of fungi is what's known as mycology. Mycology is really an understudied field as it relates to other forms of biology. Like we study human sciences, we've studied botany and plant sciences for, for hundreds of years, but the kingdom of fungi is really untapped and there's a lot of potential there from new medications as it may be, or all the way through to materials and new cropping systems that we might use to feed our planet in the future. And I think now we're starting to pay more attention to this untapped kingdom so that we can start to bring new products and new solutions to our planetary population. It really could be a generational shift for everybody if we all knew this information and it was disseminated to us the way that you are telling me. I can't imagine why, but are, do you have any critics and what are their criticisms of your idea? Oh, of course. Uh, as you scale a new business and particularly one that's taking on 
large incumbent industries like the plastics industry, we always see criticisms. Some of the criticisms come around scalability and we demonstrate our ability to scale just through the products that we sell and the partnerships that we foster in order to bring products like mushroom packaging into new markets. And so we don't do that alone. We do that uh, principally through partnerships with organizations that really know their markets and industries well within their countries. The other aspect is really around the durability. I think there's a lot of question around what it means to be compostable versus biodegradable. There's just a, a, a lack of understanding. And so first, compostability doesn't mean that a product isn't durable. Mm. So for example, a wood that's used to build your house is also a compostable product. If you put a two by four in the woods, it'll degrade over a few months or years, but it doesn't mean that it's not durable for applications within the home. The same is true for mycelium, and it only becomes degraded when you put it into the right plant-based compost pile where the enzymes that bacteria and fungi produce, which are basically the little chemicals that help degrade different types of materials, are present and can degrade these materials rapidly. And I think the key difference here is, is that you select a material with the intention for the market. So as an example in packaging, you do not want your product after its useful life in terms of shipping and protecting your product in transit to subsist for decades. That doesn't make sense. And that's mm-hmm. obviously what plastics do. Uh, and so that's something that you want to be readily disposable and really not have to concern yourself with after you've gotten your product in the mail. Whereas when you think of a, a building construction product, that's something where you want to put it within your house and ensure that it's durable for decades, because that is something that inherently has to last. And so when you select your material, you select for the intended use. And that really helps draw away from certain criticisms that at least we've come across over time. My understanding is the life cycle of this is an ever circular life cycle. So I I don't know how you would really critique that it's not harming our planet. And it's something that goes back into our planet to help our planet. So I'd like to move into you as a person who had an idea with another person, when you were young, what did you want to be? Or what did you want to do when you grew up? First, Iman, I am the the son of scientists. So my mother is a biologist. My father's a physicist. He also has an engineering degree. And so I think I fall right in as a happy medium between the two of those as like a biomechanic. So I've got the engineering mindset and the biology mindset. And at least as my parents tell it, uh, the first thing that I wanted to be when I was younger was a scientist of the world. (laughs) I just had infinite curiosity and I wanted to learn as much as possible, uh, both about the natural and built world to see uh, how I could uh, provide uh, my own skill and and value. And I think that I'm living that out in reality today. I think entrepreneurship really brings uh, the opportunities to the table where One, I can learn, so I can always identify and learn about new markets and challenges that are being uh, faced by the planet. And two, educate. So having conversations with individuals like you about the opportunities that we see for fungi and sharing about how this untapped kingdom of biology could really help solve some of our, our most global problem. So obviously your parents were an inspiration. Once you got to a university, What was the big aha moment for you when it comes to mycelium? So our our senior capstone course at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, a course called Inventor Studio, 
is really what gave me the entrepreneurship bug. And that was because we had this wonderful professor and mentor, Bert Swersey. First, Bert was a serial entrepreneur. He had started a number of medical device companies over the years. And he was, in essence, retired and doing this teaching as a passion. He really wanted to inspire and educate uh, young entrepreneurs. And that was the first instance where I learned, well, hey, you know, there, there are other paths other than joining Conglomo. I could start my own organization, really drive that uh, myself, and then, of course, bear the fruit of that labor and see the impact in real time. And so that was a real meaningful push. But I will say it was really challenging to shift that mindset because, of course, going through a four-year education, you are thinking about what your next step and journey in life is going to be. And oftentimes it entails joining a different organization. And it was really with Bert's encouragement that he inspired us to take this beyond just a classroom project, to start to develop a business plan and to see how we could get sponsorships through grants and business plan competitions to help spur this idea to something that could be a commercial success. And so it was without his encouragement and without his mentorship, we really wouldn't be where we are today with over 100 employees and manufacturing operations around the world. So let's talk about employees. When you are an entrepreneur, an inventor, a scientist, and um, it sounds like you were pretty young when you got started because you were still in university, how do you build a team? Building a team is the most critical component about building a business. Without the right people behind you and around you, you really cannot execute against a vision. And one person really can't do it all. So first and foremost, I was very fortunate to have a business partner, Evan Bayer, who was Ecovative CEO, first start the company with, with me. And together, we wore a lot of hats in those early days. We were doing all the technology development, commercial conversations, things of that nature which quickly identified some of our key needs. Uh, some of those competencies ranged from uh, mushroom science. So we quickly hired a mycologist because as two engineers, we uh, certainly knew that we had a lot of holes in our competency as it related to biology. And then from there, it was really organic growth in terms of identifying which key needs we had, uh, be it from marketing to uh, people development and training all the way through to engineering resources to design and build facilities. That really happened organically over time and continues to do so. So we continue to add great and talented people around us, really now around the world, because we can work in a remote situation uh, to bring the right minds to the table to hit our next phase of objectives and goals as we look to displace plastics and animal products. So it's almost like the fact that mushrooms are so applicable to everything that you can be a new entrepreneur, you know, every couple of years as, as the science goes forward and as you learn new stuff. So you don't necessarily have to say at any point, well, I've been doing this for a while. I don't feel challenged because there's so much more to explore. That's right. There's so much breadth of opportunity that I get to learn about new industries almost on a daily basis really test and see what might make sense for our business and if we can really serve a true need for the world. And if so, it's worth investing a few years in and seeing what we can grow and the team that we can build in order to support. It's really exciting stuff. It almost feels like I can imagine just 
like thousands of different kinds of mushrooms growing out of your brain almost. And one is like a, a piece of packaging and one is some bacon and one is this. Like that's what I creatively imagine this world that you work in to be. And speaking of creativity, something I know a lot about is naming. And something I can tell you, which you probably know, is it's very hard. It's very hard to name something. Can you talk about how you got to Ecovative? So when we selected Ecovative, and, and mind you, again, two engineering students are the, the two that put their heads together to come up with this name. Uh, it's really a derivation of ecology and innovate. And it's also a challenging word to say. So when you think about ecovative, we hear uh, challenges with this pronunciation time and time again. And so now when we launched uh, our food business, uh, My Forest Foods, we did that with new intention. Uh, trying to make sure that we could communicate what our organization does in something that's comprehensible by a general audience. And so I would not recommend inventing a word. It's incredibly <laughs> challenging. But 15 years later, I think we've built a solid brand around our organization and uh, demonstrated leadership in our space. Well, as a copywriter, I would say that you went through the process the right way. Sometimes it's easier to just say what the thing does. Sometimes you want to make up a word and build a brand around it. And you can make up that word. And over time, you do grow that equity where people will understand it. And that's the long picture you're looking at. Now, you know, the minute I have a good idea, I'm like, ah, I couldn't start a business. I don't even know where I would start. If you were to give somebody inspiration to know that they could do and start their own thing. Is there a breakdown you can give to young entrepreneurs or even 37 year old, perhaps uh, entrepreneurs um, that would spark them to understand that they can do it? Yeah, certainly. Well, first and foremost, if you identify a real problem that you think you have a solution for, there really isn't anyone else out there in the world that's better suited to do it than you, likely because you're one of the most passionate people about that. I'd say a couple of key things of advice are, one, don't do it alone. As an entrepreneur, mm. especially you have something that is inspiring and could have a meaningful impact on the planet, there's plenty of folks out there that are more than willing to help. And so asking for help from experts, there's never an instance where I've reached out to an expert and they've told me to go away. And asking for expertise and advice is a great way to both accelerate and test the concept that you have. The other thing that I've seen commonly is don't be afraid to fail or get rejection. So it's never too early to push something out into the market. The best thing you can do with a new product or service is to test it out and see how a potential customer really responds to it. That really allows you to both test the concept and iterate upon it. I think it's very rare. In fact, I don't know any instances in where the very first concept is the product that you go to market with. It's inherently iterative. And you can't be afraid to fail and you can't be afraid to get important criticism on the early aspect of, of a venture. So it, in summary, I think it's really, if you've got a great concept, you're really the right person to do it. Surround yourself with the right advice and guidance and don't be afraid to put something out there into the world. That's amazing advice. I mean, just the simple idea that if you have a great idea, you're the right person to do it and asking people if you're passionate about something, you want to share it. If other people are passionate about something, they want to share it. So I think that that's wonderful advice. 
Have you received any advice that just really sticks out in your mind from any of these people that you have collaborated with that you can share with us? I received lots of amazing advice over the years. I think as it comes to entrepreneurship, uh, one of the most important pieces of advice that I received, which was uh, from Bert Swerzy, was to focus on this full time. It's really challenging to divide attention between a new business as well as you know a different career path and then it really puts a stake in between focusing on what might be most important for growing and executing against a business plan and the balance of commitments you may have and so really diving in entirely and dedicating yourself to an opportunity if you have the means and capability of doing so i think is something i would also highly recommend when evan and i started the company we were just out of college so you know continuing to eat ramen noodles and maintaining a relatively low budget was something feasible for us because we didn't have families or commitments, things of that nature at the time. The other great advice that I've received uh, was from another serial entrepreneur and a member of our board, Jerry Weinstein, who always encouraged us to look at other industries to find uh, where we might be able to adapt technology or business models in order to assist with scale up because the more capital we could save in terms of uh, scaling our technology and learning from other industries really helped mitigate risk for us as we were on our own journey to commercialize our products. And so that's similar to asking for advice, but it's about fostering the right type of symbiotic relationships through your business model and through the greater business community. Another thing we can learn from mushrooms and mycelium. Um, I don't eat bacon. I was raised Muslim. I'm not practicing anymore. Uh, but everybody's always trying to push bacon down my throat and I will not, I just, one thing, it upsets my stomach. It might be psychosomatic. What is the overall feedback from bacon lovers on your bacon? Yeah. So bacon lovers have uh, given us resoundingly positive feedback about our, my bacon strips, which are not animal based. So they're entirely vegan and uh, grown with just six simple ingredients. Oyster mushroom mycelium is the primary ingredient and it cooks just like bacon, though you of course wouldn't have experience with that. It has no must, no fuss cleanup and has a great taste and mouthfeel that most would come to expect from bacon. And so Iman, I'd love to send you a pack of our bacon. So the first bacon you ever have is mushroom bacon, if you're down for that. And I know bacon lovers would not lie to you because these people are crazy for bacon in the world. So if you're getting that kind of feedback, maybe I can taste bacon and understand or at least taste it and say, you guys maybe could calm down. There's lots of other things that are also. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to try it out. When we were doing our product testing, first, we got great feedback around uh, our bacon uh, and the other side is when we ask people what's preventing them from being a vegetarian or flexitarian, it either came down to one of two things. It was either bacon or cheese. And so we we focused on, on bacon as the, the unmet need in the market. It's cheese and buffalo wings for me. I think those are, would be the two hardest things to give up. Holy smokes, I might have to try some of the my bacon. Gavin is so smart and sounds like such a fun guy. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Iman, what was the most interesting thing you learned about Gavin during this conversation? You know, I think that it's always interesting, especially for somebody like me who likes to learn things, to find that they have a huge gap in knowledge. 
So I think the most interesting thing is finding out how much I didn't know about plastic and what you can replace plastic with and how much that can actually affect our future and help our environment. I was really excited by all of the things that he taught me because it really seems like the possibilities could be endless and that there could be a solution to some of the problems that we face. That's great. Tell us how our folks can learn more about Gavin and Ecovative. Well, everything that they are doing is so cool. So I do encourage people to check it out, especially their DIY Grow It Yourself kit that you can do at home and you can learn how to make all sorts of things without having to put it together. So you can get one of your own at grow.bio. And to learn about everything Ecovative is up to, you can go to ecovative.com. E-C-O-V-A-T-I-V-E.com. That's great, Iman. Thanks. Well, that does it for us. This week, the podcast team and I would like to thank Beth Rolfs. If you'd like to hear more creators, founders, and inventors discuss how they try solving big problems, then check out all past podcasts in this feed. Reach out to us with questions and comments on Gray's social channels or our email address, podcasts at gray.com. And lastly, tell someone about our show to help us share these ideas with the world. I'm Jason Connor, and thanks for listening to Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas. Gray Matter is hosted by Jason Connor, produced by Samantha Geller and Samantha Alvarado, mixed by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes at Gramercy Park Studios with post-production support from Ned Martin, Robin Frank, and Kyle St. Agath. Marketing and administrative support by Christina Hyde, Adrian Hopkins, Marcella Basilar, Kevin McManus, and Gina Cuneo. Editor and executive producer, Joey Scarillo. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com. <laughs>